Hey, this is Jared Wellman. I'm the lead pastor at Tate Springs, and this is our podcast. God is telling a story of hope and redemption. Hope and redemption. Redemption that can only be found through Jesus Christ. I hope that this is a blessing and inspires you to discover your part in God's story. All right, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word with me this morning and turn to the book of Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, as we are uh, continuing this sermon series called When in Rome. Now, as you're doing that, let me ask you a question this morning, or just ask you really to imagine with me for a minute, uh, a world uh, where there were no such things as traffic lights, no such things as stop signs, uh, no such things as speed limit signs. Now, imagine uh, a world like that for a minute, and I imagine the thing that, that would come to your mind is the idea of chaos. And, uh, and so, if there were no such, no such things as those, uh, really just kind of road regulations, of course, we can imagine that there would be things like increased accidents at intersections. As, uh, as people are pulling up to a place where typically there would be uh, a light that would stop people from uh, at, a, at a place and, and keep people from going through, uh, if there were no such thing as traffic lights, then people would be trying to figure that out, and I imagine there would be some increased accidents there. There would also be traffic jams at places like four-way stops because everyone would look around and think that it was their time to go, of course. And there would probably just be increased road rage, which is a very scary thing to think about altogether. Uh, the thing that comes to my mind when I think about a world like this is, is that verse in Judges when it says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And I think that's kind of what would happen. But, you know, when you think of it, here's, here's something that we probably don't initially imagine, but I think would also be true. That people would at some level begin to understand that we have to travel, that we have to make this work, that we have to get along. And there would be some attempts and probably even some successes at some order and some civility. So people would understand the need to regulate their, regulate their speed, for example, or people would understand the need to stop at four-way stops even without a stop sign and just make sure no one was, was coming through. And, and people would, would just know all of these different kinds of things generally. Now. Let's take this further. Imagine with me for just a minute that uh, if the rules themselves were perfect. So you're driving around in the Metroplex, for example, and you're on the highway and you look at the speed limit sign and you think, you know what? This is the perfect speed for this highway. This is perfectly paced. Imagine if that's just what you thought about the rule and imagine that was objectively true, that whatever the speed limit sign is, that it was just perfectly paced. Or imagine whenever you're coming up to the construction on 20 and you just look around and you think, you know what, they really thought this thing through. This is just, I could not imagine, I could not imagine that they, that they figured this out any better uh, than that. I know that's a long shot to, to think about that, but just think about that with me for, for just a minute. Listen, even if, even if these things were true, we would, if the rules were perfect, if the construction was thought through, there would still be accidents and road jams and road rage and all of these different kinds of accidents and things. Why? Because the problem would not be in the rules. The problem would be in the people who are trying to follow the rules. So there is a battle between law and self-rule in the world, in other words, happening in the world that results in ongoing accidents, in the need for a kind of a supernatural help in order for us 
as people to follow the kinds of rules that have been implemented in the world. And the idea is that the only thing that would keep us, the only thing that would keep us from having accidents are perfect rules with perfect people following them perfectly. That's the only way that it would work. So the common denominator between the fact of rules or the absence of rules is the people that are following them seem to have something broken inside of them, inside of us, that can allow us to do some things right. We can do some things right, even in our brokenness, but the fact is we cannot do all things right all of the time. You see, there is this this thing inside of us, this people made in God's image, this people made by this creator that kind of operates as a moral compass for us. And it's kind of like we have this internal traffic light or this internal speedometer, so to speak. And it guides us and it warns us and it even tells us to stop. And this moral code is etched on our hearts and it's a testimony of God's eternal law. But the fact is that while God has etched his law onto our hearts, we as humans are simultaneously plagued by this nature that tends to lean towards sin. It's as this, the old hymn is true, which says, Lord, we are prone to wonder, Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. And so there's this battle, if you will, for our souls. A battle between this thing called original sin, which plagues us and, and causes us to lean towards sin, and this thing called the Imago Dei. And so we, we are kind of threading these ideas together that we've talked about the last couple of weeks. The Imago Dei, made in God's image. Original sin means we are born into sin. You see, these two things are true at the same time, and there's this battle between these two kinds of things. And you may be listening saying, okay, well, what's the point of all this? Well, insofar as it relates to this morning's sermon, it's easy sometimes as Christians for us to point fingers at those who, although they are made in God's image, are just embracing what we would understand as original sin. But the reality is this, that we have to understand as followers of Jesus that we are susceptible to the very same things that they are. And so we are susceptible to the same kinds of pitfalls, even though we are Christians. And understanding this is critical for us if we're not only going to follow Jesus in word, but follow Jesus in how we treat those who are not following Jesus. That's what Paul's talking about in this morning's message. So imagine a world with me for just a minute where our awareness of God's moral standards doesn't lead us to a place of condemnation and judgment of other people who are not living according to God's laws and morality, but rather to a humble heart that that is eager to grow and extend the hand of mercy. So here is the sermon in a sentence this morning. In the battle for our souls, we find refuge in God's unwavering grace. So Paul has an argument here that he's laying out. And, uh, and what we're going to do is just kind of articulate three different points in Romans chapter 2 and a little bit in Romans 3. We're not going to have time to, to read all of that, uh, but we're taking a big chunk this morning. I'm just going to uh, select these verses that are kind of the key verses expressing the key themes in Romans chapter 2. The very first thing that Paul tells us is right there in the middle. This is one of the key verses in all of Romans. And uh, it's Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And he tells us that there is a morality that transcends us. There is a morality that transcends. Look with me at verses 14 and 15 of of chapter 2. He says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. We're going to unpack that in just a second. How do they do this? Well, in verse 15, they show the work of the law written on their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. 
So I want you to look there in verse 14 when he says, when Gentiles who do not have the law, Gentiles without the law, what does he mean here? Paul is talking to Jewish believers. He's talking to people who are following Jesus, who have confessed Jesus as Lord in Rome, but they happen to be Jewish. And remember, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, what does that mean? Well, it means that God first gave his law to the Jewish people in the Old Testament, and through his progressive revelation in the New Testament, he opened that up to the Gentile people. Gentile people could be saved in the Old Testament, and Jewish people can be saved in the New Testament time. It's just the way that God was unfolding his story. It was first to the Jewish people. In other words, God had to pick someone, he picked Abraham, through whom to say, hey, I'm gonna have a relationship with you, and I'm gonna testify that I'm the one true God through you and through your descendants. I have to have a people that of all the nations in the world, when they look around at, at Persia, when they look at, uh, around at Babylon, and they look around at Egypt, and they say, well, Egypt has their God, and Babylon has their God, and Persia has their God, and, and Israel has their God. God wanted to, to have a people and a nation through whom he would say, hey, I'm the real God and I'm standing up. And that was the idea of the, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So when he says here to the Gentiles who do not have the law, what he means here is he's talking about the Jewish believers and their, and their, their struggle with the Gentiles who are now coming into their faith that has been fulfilled in Christ, but they're doing so apart from the law. We talked about this last week. Why are the Jewish believers having a hard time with this? Well, if you look at verse 25, for one example, they had to be circumcised in the Old Testament, and they're probably a little upset that the Gentiles are not having to go through that experience. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. And so he's talking about some of the laws that they had to follow in order to testify of the one true God. But now all of this has been fulfilled in Jesus and so they no longer have to follow some of these laws in the, 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 the old ways. This is what Jesus was preaching about in his Sermon on the Mount. And so they thought, in other words, some of these Jewish believers were struggling early on in the church because they thought that the law was how someone was saved. They were still struggling with that. And, uh, and so you'll remember we talked about how the law was never designed to save someone, but to point to the need for salvation, which only comes from Jesus Christ. Listen. There's no other name by which man must be saved than, that, than the, uh, the name of Jesus Christ. There's no other way by which someone can be saved. We cannot work our way up to heaven. We cannot be a good enough person. It is Jesus and Jesus only. He died on the cross for our sins. We have faith in his work and we find his grace. That's what Paul is referencing here. So what I want to do though is I kind of want to take this concept and I want to put it uh, in today's American context for us. I want us to understand what, what does this mean? Because we are not struggling with the Jew and Gentile issue the way that the early Roman believers were. That's, we don't walk around talking about and, and upset with, uh, with Gentiles that have come into the faith without being circumcised. That's at least not something I'm struggling with. I don't know about you. But there are people in our world who are not sitting in a church on this Sunday morning who are, who are not confessing Jesus as their Lord and their Savior, who are expressing things in their life that testify that there's a such thing as morality, in other words. And so, in other words, there are people who don't believe the Ten Commandments who are following some of the Ten Commandments. There are people who don't believe in the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God who are acting sometimes in ways that would suggest that they believe in the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. So what do we mean by that? Well, one example are atheists. Now, there are some atheists who 
are so anti-God that they have become Satanists. We're not talking about that kind of atheist. We're talking about an atheist who has some kind of morality in his life. There are plenty of atheists who do not kill, for example, or steal, and who'd even say that it's wrong to do these things. For example, there was one famous atheist named Christopher Hitchens some years ago. He's passed away now, but he was a British-American author and a journalist, and he was a staunch atheist who would argue for morality. He would argue for the idea of morality, and he would say, you don't need God to have morality. Here's his arguments. And while I disagree strongly with his implications, I want you to just listen to what he's saying, and then I'm going to show how he's, uh, how he's really kind of echoing something here with Paul, and we're going to solve that tension. Christopher Hitchens, this atheist, would argue for innate morality. In other words, morality that is naturally within people. And so he believed that humans have this innate sense of right and wrong, that we just know what's right and we know what's wrong. And he would argue that you don't need religion to tell you that. He would argue that you don't need to come to church to learn what's right and what's wrong. And he would often point out, for example, societies and individuals that it would exhibit moral behavior uh, that, um, that law, he would say long existed before world religions, which of course is, is true insofar as that humans do and have historically exhibited an innate sense of right and wrong. But I would say that since the dawning of civilization, there has been religion because God is the one who revealed himself to Adam and Eve at the very beginning. And I would call his relationship with them a religion when he immediately gave them his word. But it's neither here nor there for what we're talking about in this. Just want to make sure that you understand that I'm not agreeing with an atheist here. The next thing is he would argue for a secular morality. A secular morality. He would argue that secular societies or individuals have created so you could find a village that has never heard of Jesus and you could walk in there and you could see a society that was functioning with things that what we would say look like the Ten Commandments. And so they would say, yeah, if this person in the village kills someone, then we put them into this thing called a jail. And so, in other words, we believe it's wrong to kill, but they've never read the Ten Commandments that tell them that. Or if someone broke into one of the, uh, their villaging uh, houses and, uh, and they stole something, they would say, yeah, that's wrong, but they've never read the Ten Commandments. In other words, Hitchens is making the argument that because that exists, he's saying that idea of morality exists apart from God, therefore God doesn't exist. But that's the wrong conclusion. Because what Paul's saying here is that the Gentiles who did not ever have the law given to them would exhibit morality or the Ten Commandments or the Word of God in their hearts and in their lives without ever having the law given to them. And so no one is, uh, so uh, no one, in other words, including Paul and therefore including God himself, is denying that non-Christians can't act or understand the idea of morality. apart from religion. In fact, Paul is affirming that they can, they do, and they must. What Hitchens and others are missing is this, that the moral law that God has given us transcends, it transcends cultures and societies. It's not that cultures and societies are developing developing and creating these social constructs of morality in order just to have society. It's that there's something in them that they are exhibiting as they develop these things in order to have morality that transcends them, whether they realize it or not. In other words, morality is not created by man in order to have society. It's something that transcends man, created by God, placed within us that we then exhibit whether we've read the Ten Commandments or not. And that is a huge, huge implication. 
So what Hitchens and others can't account for is the idea that morality exists in the first place. That all of us, when we're acting moral, are simply exhibiting something that God placed within us, whether we are a theist or an atheist. And so what Paul is doing here is this. He's showing us that not only is there an objective moral law written on our hearts, but that God is the one who created it, that he created man, and that he put his law on our hearts. And church, that is significant, and here's why. Because this is an Imago Dei issue. An Imago Dei issue. The image of God. The image of God. Now, um, what are the implications of the image of God? Well, one is morality. I have a, a definition here on the screen for you from a few theologians named Grins, Gorinsky, and Nordling, which they describe the implications of what it means to be made in the image of God. Remember, every person is made in the image of God. So Christopher Hitchens, being a staunch atheist, he was made in the image of God. Even though he died denying Jesus as Lord, he was still made in God's image. Nothing takes that away. But there are implications that we need to understand to being made in God's image. And so these theologians say this, it means you have the presence of will, emotions, you can reason, you have the ability to think, you have the ability to act creatively, you have the ability to interact socially with others. In other words, a goldfish is not sitting in a bowl this morning thinking about the situation in the Middle East. Why? Because a goldfish is not made in the image of God. A raccoon is not able to paint the sunset over the Pacific. Why? Because a raccoon is not made in the image of God. A raccoon is made by God, but not in God's image. There's a difference. A stone in our parking lot is not contemplating to itself whether or not God could make a rock so heavy that he couldn't lift it. That's not what's happening with rocks and stones and raccoons and hamsters and tigers and lions and bears and all those kinds of things. That's not the way that they think. My dog Biscuit is not at home right now wondering about the theory of gravity because he's not made in God's image. He does not have that capacity. And so the idea is that moral actions exist because God created morality. And morality is an, it's something that is part of us because we are made in God's image. Atheists, theists, Hindus, Mormons, Christians, we are all made in God's image. Now, if we were to stop there, this would not be a Christian sermon. But there's a second thing that Paul is doing here, which is this. It is that all of us who are made in God's image also have a brokenness within us that is deep. A brokenness within us that is deep. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 1. Remember, Paul is talking to you and he's talking to me. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to Christians. He says, Therefore you have no excuse every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. So he's talking to Jewish believers who are responding to sin that they see on the outside. Remember, the background of this in chapter 2 is what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. It's just a list of sins. And so he lists all these sins, and the point is he's trying to help us to understand original sin, and that we are all part of the fabric of original sin, we, which means we have this deep brokenness within us. And he says, therefore, you have no excuse. You need to understand that although you're made in God's image, you are also part of original sin. And so let me illustrate. Um, I imagine most of us in this room have been able to, uh, to ride on an airplane before. And, uh, and so I, I, uh, I love riding on airplanes. They never get old to me. 
And when I'm there, I like looking out and it just gives you this different perspective. And, uh, and so I wanted my children to have that same perspective as well. I can't remember the first time I rode on an airplane. It might have been in, in college. And so um, when I had the opportunity to go to Nashville one time, I took Hannah. When I had the opportunity to go to Corpus Christi, I took Bethany. And I just wanted to see their little faces uh, who, when they draw pictures, uh, were always very tall because their perspective is always looking up at everybody, right? And so that's why little kids are drawing everyone super duper tall because they're seeing everything from that. Have you ever uh, been somewhere as a kid and it looked really big and you went back as an adult and you were like, I remember it a lot bigger than that. You know, when they were little, we had a night of worship across the street and there was this little bitty hill and they were calling it a mountain. And about, as they were playing on it, they were like, dad, we're going to go play on the mountain. I was like, mountain? We're in Texas, you know? And they went and they took one step up, you know, and they're king of the mountain. And, uh, and so, but when you put them on an airplane, then suddenly you, you fly up and you look down and suddenly your perspective is very different. And so instead of seeing everyone from the ground up, now you're seeing everything from the top down, which by the way is how God describes his revelation to us. The Bible has a couple of descriptions for how God has revealed himself to us. There is general revelation, uh, which means there are things generally in creation uh, about which he is revealing himself, through which he is revealing himself. Morality, by the way, is one of those things. We can look at a society and we can say, well, wow, look, they're following the t- the, what we would call the Ten Commandments. And so Christopher Hitchens and others would say, well, y'all just developed the Ten Commandments from the accidental reality of morality. And we would say, no, morality, it's the opposite uh, way. It's that when you, when you get a different perspective and you look down, you realize that the reason that cultures are acting that way is because God has invested morality in the Imago Dei of humanity. It's a very different perspective. And so if we're hanging out down here and always in, a, in, a, in this uh, humani- uh, a way of humanity where we are constantly naturally looking up and we're divorcing ourselves from the supernatural reality of, of God as Lord, then of course we're going to make those kinds of conclusions. But whenever we get up here, we, only, we begin to see how, yeah, there's more to the world than Arlington, Texas. There are continents and there are seas and, and there are rivers and, and you see everything coming together. That's called God's revelation. There's general revelation and then of course there's special revelation, which is not just that God is revealing himself through morality and through creation, but also through his word and most importantly, through Jesus Christ. And so this is what it means to be made in the image of God. And this is also what it means for us to be made in the image, but also part of original sin is to have this perspective that God has given us. Now, here's the deal. You would think that those of us who have been made in God's image, who have, who have the revelation of God in our lives, not only generally, but specially because of salvation, it's as if God has put us on an airplane and we are able to look down and see the rest of creation from God's perspective. And you would think that we would do that in a way that would cause us to just be in fear of God and humble about the fact that his grace has saved us. But that's not always how we respond, is it? The way that we typically respond is what Paul says here in verse 1, which is that instead of being humbled by the reality, sometimes we end up using that to judge. Now, to be clear, we're not talking about non-believers at this point rejecting God's revelation. Of course they do. That's what makes them an unbeliever. We're talking about believers who have received God's revelation, accepted it, and who are employing it in our lives, and yet we're not acting like it. 
Now, we're not also talking about proper discernment. There is a such thing as discernment. That's a different sermon. You know, for example, John chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus says, judge with right judgment. So, by the way, you can judge. We're not talking about not judging. We're talking about improper judging at this point. In Matthew chapter 7, at the end of Jesus' uh, Sermon on the Mount, what does he say? He says, judge not so that you're not judged. And we take that and we say, oh, we're not supposed to judge at all. Well, no, he's not saying don't judge at all because if you continue reading in verse 15, he says, beware of false teachers. How are you going to know a teacher is false except by judging what they're teaching? So you have to judge. You just have to judge the right way. And the, the way that you judge the right way is you let God be the judge and you let his word do the judging. And you let God do those, those things. And your job is to just deploy and employ the things that he has given us in life. So what we're talking about here is judging in an improper manner. What does it mean to judge in an improper manner? Well, notice, uh, notice the end of verse one. You who judge practice the same things. So judging in an improper manner, there's a lot that can be said about it. One is that you set yourself up as God and you look at someone, an atheist, like a Christopher Hitchens, and let's just say he was still living with us. And you say, well, that man has done so much damage to the kingdom with his atheism. And, uh, and, and, and he just deserves eternal damnation. That would be acting in an improper way of judgment because it's to remove any ability for God to still distill his grace to him while he was still living. Another way is to judge people and look at their sin in their life and point the fingers and refuse to look in the mirror at ourselves and realize that, hey, we're sinners too. And that's what Paul's talking about here in verse 1. Do you remember chapter 3, verses 9 through 18 from last week? When Paul says, you can just look there with me. He says, as, as it is written in verse 10, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands, none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There's not one who does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. And he just goes on and on. Imagine reading that and saying, well, I'm so glad I'm not one of these. I'm so glad that I'm not one who is part of the fabric of this sin. Paul's saying that there were people in the, this day who were acting like that, and this is what he's talking about when he says that they are judging in an improper way, and by doing that, they condemn themselves because they're judging people, yet they're doing the same things. This is what Jesus preaches in the Sermon on the Mount when he opens it up, and he says, listen, those of you who are, who are saying you've never murdered and therefore you're good, guess what? Have you ever had angry, uh, anger towards a brother before? He says, guess what? Then you're guilty of the same heart and spirit of the law that tells us not to murder. And so what he's telling us is, here is, yes, there's the letter of the law, but there's also the spirit of the law. And the fact is, when you understand the law the way that God uh, tells us to understand it, you recognize that we are all lawbreakers, that we are all sinners. And so when we misunderstand the law, here's what happens. You take things like morality, and instead of understanding that as a tool that can help fix someone, we tend to use it as a weapon to destroy someone. So if I had a hammer with me, I could look at that hammer, and we would understand that that's a tool that can be used to drive in nails and to, to fix things. But I could also take that hammer and I could use it as a, as a very dangerous weapon. And what Paul's telling us here is that we are taking some good things of God, the law, morality, general revelation, and instead of using it to help people understand the lawgiver, we're using it in a way to judge people because of their immorality in a way that helps them to, that divorces them from the reality that God is the one who is the, the lawgiver. How are we doing this? 
Well, just around the corner is holiday season, Christmas season. And what happens so often is we'll look at a company that is a secular company, not a Christian company like a Starbucks, and they'll, call, they'll say, here's a holiday cup, and we lose our minds because they're not saying it's a Christmas cup. Well, guess what? Of course they're not going to use Christmas because they don't believe in Christ. But here's what Paul's saying. When we get more upset over a secular company not using the right Christian words than we do about them not understanding and believing in Jesus, that's when we've lost the plot. That's when we've done the kind of judging that Paul's saying here, or with Target recently. And I get it. We're not shopping at Target right now. But am I not shopping at Target simply because of the bathing suits they were selling, or am I more grieved at those who made those decisions because they don't understand the picture that God has given us with gender and other uh, related issues. See, what Paul's telling us here is this. We can just be mad at non-believers for acting like non-believers, or we can be brokenhearted and pray for their salvation and tell them about, hey, I see these things in your life. Let me tell you why this is wrong. Let me tell you about why it's wrong that you would choose to, to create this kind of fabric and sell it in this kind of way. But instead, we just get mad and we boycott and, and we act in a way that is more angry about them being non-believers than about why they're non-believers. And so Paul's telling us that when we act out as Christians, we want to be praying for these people and understanding their brokenness. And by the way, understanding that we're broken as well. And so the moral law on our hearts is not, it's not this thing that has been given to us in order to, to be wielded as a weapon to judge Non-believers are already being judged by God by being a non-believer. That's what Paul said in Romans 1. When an unbeliever, someone who does not understand Jesus as Lord, is acting in a way with their relationships or with their language or with the substances they're consuming or whatever, that's evidence of the fact that they're being judged and that the wrath of God is on the horizon for them. So guess what? We don't have to worry about making sure that they're condemned. God is doing that work. What we're left on the planet to do is to help them to understand that God wants to offer grace for them and that if they repent from their sins and turn to Jesus, then they can be saved. Look with me at verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. We already know it. We already know it. It's not that when the law of the land is the things that we're seeing in our country— about relationships and about gender and, and all these things. It's not that that means we're on our way to judgment. That just means that we're already being judged. That's what Paul says in Romans 1. So the point here is that the brokenness in us is so deep that we need some supernatural help. What is a supernatural help? Well, this is the last thing that Paul gives us. A mor morality that transcends. And, and this last thing is this, a grace that saves. A grace that saves. Why don't you look with me at verse 4 of chapter 2. He says, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? The kindness of God leads you to repentance. So some years ago, I was uh, in um, the Middle East, and it was the last time I was there a few years ago. I took a church trip. And... Um, we landed in Tel Aviv, Israel, and we immediately crossed into Jordan, into Amman. And we went to uh, Petra. And uh, if you don't know what Petra is, just watch Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And, uh, and that's what made it famous. It's an amazing city. It's an ancient city of red rock. And um, 
And, and it's, it's amazing because uh, when you're walking, and again, Indiana Jones is the best way to kind of get a picture of it, but you're, you're walking in this snake path and, and you're just, you're walled in by red rock. It's gorgeous. It's one of the, some, it, it is the most amazing sight I've ever seen in God's uh, general revelation of creation that I've ever seen. And you're walking through and you do feel like you're in kind of a movie set and you come out and immediately there's that famous treasury carved into the side of the wall. And, uh, and as our group walked there, we were all just amazed. But then if you keep going, there's only one way in and one way out, by the way. So the further you go in, just remember this for where I'm going with the story, the further you go in, the further you have to walk to come out. So we get there in about the middle of the day. And, uh, and so at some point, I break away from the group. I don't think I was supposed to, but I wanted to see Petra. So I break away from the group. And, uh, and I just want to, it takes three days to see the whole city, but I wanted to see it all in like two hours. And so I'm running, I'm like, oh, there's the temple. Oh, there's the treasury. Oh, there's this and there's that. And so I get, I, I get past all of these, these, uh, these ruins and they're amazing. And then I see this staircase and it says the best view ever. And I was like, I'd like to see the best view ever, you know? And, uh, and so I look around and I, and I say, hey, how high is that? And they're like, oh, it's pretty high. You probably want to rent a, a donkey to, to go up that thing. And I said, okay, how much to rent this uh, donkey? And he said, this, this little donkey's name is Monica. It costs like $65 to have her ride you up and, and then she'll bring you back down. I said, great. So I paid the money and I'm riding this, this donkey up these steps, you know, and I'm looking over and I'm getting really scared because the higher you go, it's literally just a cliff all the way down. And I'm thinking, how trustworthy is Monica right now, you know? <laughs> so, you know, she's going and we're going up. And, uh, and I get all the way to the top. And listen, I'm glad I, I, I borrowed that animal because it was a long way up. But as I'm going, the sun is setting. Now remember, we are in a city of rock, okay? There are no, there are no lights like this all around. And I'm thinking, I gotta see this view before the sun sets. What I wasn't thinking was that I gotta get back before the sun sets. We'll get to that in a minute. So I'm going all the way up and I get to this thing called the monastery and it's amazing. And, and I thought that's where the best view was, but they said, you can't take the donkey any further up, but you have to keep going up to see the best view ever. And I said, okay, so I leave the donkey. I go to see the monastery. I come back down and say, listen, I'm not gonna make it back in time. So you and the donkey can go back down. So they go down and I go all the way up to the top and I look out and I'm standing on this top of this mountain in, in Jordan. And I look over and I see Israel. And let me tell you, it was the best view ever. But then the sun sets. And I'm looking around and there's nowhere there. And there's no discernible path, by the way. It's just kind of rock. And I look around and I'm like, where am I? And am I still in Jordan even? And, uh, and so I turn around and at some point, someone had set up some rocks, you know, they stack them on top of each other uh, as mile markers. And so I, th- I said, well, I think that's, I think I remember that rock. So I start going back and I find my way back to the monastery. And I recognize that the sun continues to set. It continues to get dark. And suddenly I'm on the steps. I'm having to walk all the way down back to the floor of Petra and the sun completely goes down and it's pitch black. And I thought to myself, Amanda is going to kill me. I'm going to die here. And then she's going to find out and then she's going to kill me. And, and I thought, I've really gotten myself in a bad situation because I've heard stories. I, I started to realize, you know what? I'm by myself. I'm in the Middle East. And uh, there are people who live in the caves here. And I've heard stories about things happening here. In fact, uh, our tour guide had said that he had been shot there before. And so it's pitch black and I think, okay, what am I gonna do? And so 
I'm walking and I, and I start finding my way back and I'm hugging the wall, but I can't tell where there are entrances because I'm telling you, it's like slits in the rock that you have to turn into. So thankfully I had some battery left on my cell phone. So I'm walking away around Petra with a little cell phone flashlight. And I was thinking about that story as I was preparing for this message and here's why. Because here's what Paul's saying. He's saying that original sin is like the pitch blackness that has encompassed us as we're living in this world. But yet we have this sense of morality or these other kinds of things that God has given us, these implications and results of being made in God's image. And so I'm able to see, I have my senses to navigate through, but even with those senses, even with the ability to see, it's still not good enough. I need something else to get me back home. And that thing that Paul calls it is grace. And so grace is like this flashlight that helps us to see, yeah, I have this general compass in me, but it's not good enough. I need, I need something else. And Paul says, this is the grace of the Lord, the kindness of God that led you to repentance. Listen, God has been long suffering with you. If you're saved here today, it's not because you worked your way to that conclusion. It's not because you impressed God and he looked down upon heaven and said, man, Jared is so impressive. I'm going to save him. No. Instead, he looks down and he says, man alive, Jared is, he is acting like a fool out there in Petra. He needs, he needs my help and I'm going to give him some grace here. Listen, there is a battle for your soul. Even if you've been saved, you realize Israel was given these incredible boundaries of the promised land as God's pro uh, people, but they never inhabited the totality of that. You know what that means? It doesn't mean that they, they ever lost that calling of God. It just means they never experienced the fullness of the joy of it. Some of us, some of us, the, the pitch blackness of, of original sin is encompassing us in such a way that yes, we, we have the light of God's grace in our lives, the kindness of God, but this original sin is just kind of sh uh, just shrouding us in a way that we just feel lost. There's a battle for your soul, but we can find refuge in God's unwavering grace. Listen, I don't know if there's someone tuning in or someone here today who doesn't know Jesus, but I want you to know this. God loves you tremendously. And if you find yourself in sin and you find yourself so far away from God that you feel like there's no way back or no way to him at all, I want to let you know that it's God's kindness that will lead you to repentance. He's patient with us. And if you're interested in knowing more, just go to our website, tastesprings.com, and click that button that says, Know Jesus. And that'll send an email straight to me. Just give me your contact information so that I can follow up with you. But I want to do what Paul does, and I want to talk as we close to believers this morning. So all of you, as you came in, you had a little card uh, on, your, uh, on your pew that looked like this. Next week is Invite Your One Sunday. So I imagine and hope as I've uh, shared this idea with you the last several weeks and we, as we've watched the videos, um, that, uh, that you have been praying about your one. You've been praying for your one. So what I want to encourage you to do today is to write a name of someone in this area that you know who needs the kindness of God to lead them to repentance. And uh, when the, the singers, when the worship band is singing, I encourage you to just come up here and take your card and just drop it here on the steps of this altar. You can even bend down on your knee and pray for that person as you're doing that. But I, I encourage you to do that. And then I encourage you this week to go to that person and invite them to church with you and say, hey, there's, there's a spot next to me. I'd love for you to come to church with me. Let me wrap everything up this way and then we'll be done. 
So I did bring a hammer with me this morning. This is a hammer. I've been married for 17 years, and I think I bought this. Um, maybe Amanda bought it. She's more handy than I am. But we bought this probably, it might have been the first year we were married. We've had it for a long time. I remember using it in Odessa at, at, at the very least. So we've had it for a while. And as you look at it, you can see it's beat up. Um, in fact, there's plaster, there's, there's dried plaster all over it. Uh, the yellow handle is cracking. You can see the white underneath. And then if you look at the, the top of the hammer, it's, it's scratched and, and rusted. And so I look at this hammer, and, uh, and I was thinking about that, this hammer, as I was preparing this week, uh, because I look at this and I think, this is a hammer. I mean, it is in the image of a hammer. And if I held this up and I said, what is this, before I gave you the conclusion or the answer, you would say, that's a hammer, Pastor Jared. Why? Because it's in the image of a hammer. You know it's a hammer. But the more it lives in this world and tries to fix things and do its job and just survive, the more beat up it gets. It, it, it gets the rust on it. It gets the chips on it. And you know what? I could look at this hammer and I could discard it. I could say, man, this thing is just so beat up. I have no use for this hammer anymore. And I could just drop it in the trash and I could go buy a new one. Or I could look at this and I'd say, this hammer, even though, even though it has these chips on it, even though it has this dried plaster on it, even though it's rusting, it, it's still a good hammer and it still has value. You know, I'm afraid that a lot of us, we look at lost people in the world and we just want to discard them. We just say, you know what, look at the rust on their life. Look at the dried plaster. Look at the chips on their life. God doesn't have any desire to save that person. But listen, that's not what God has called us to do. He has not called us to judge in that kind of way. Why? Because one day God looked down upon you in your life and he looked at you and he saw this. He saw the image of him in your life. And even though he saw original sin that had chipped away and rusted and, and, and just broken you, his kindness led you to repentance. And now what he asks you to do as someone who has received his grace to consider doing the same thing for someone else. And all we're asking you to do here at Tate Springs is this, is just think of one person, one person who's broken that just needs your kindness in their life so that they can see the kindness of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for, for not discarding us. Thank you, Father, for creating us in your image and, and showcasing that in things like the moral law written on our hearts. As Christians, sometimes, Lord, we find ourselves being more critical of those outside of the kingdom, forgetting that we were once outside of the kingdom, and then responding in a way that really keeps them outside of the kingdom. So Lord, we know that we live in a world of brokenness that's in just shrouded by sin. And so Lord, we wanna pray, Lord, for, for everyone who doesn't confess Jesus and Lord and who therefore has not received your grace, that God, that you would express the same kindness that you did to us with them. And I wanna pray for us, Lord, that we would be touched by your word in a, in a way that we would be inspired, Lord, today to think of someone who needs your grace who just needs a kind word, who needs to know the love of Jesus and Jesus alone. So I pray that these names that are, that are being thought of and prayed for right now that are being written down, Lord, and that are being laid at this altar this morning, God, that you would think of these names, that we would think of them alongside you and that, Lord, you would do a miraculous work next Sunday, that they would come, hear the gospel, 
and understand that they are loved deeply by you. So Lord, meet us in these moments as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. At Tate Springs, we believe God is telling a story of redemption that can only be found in Jesus Christ. If you'd like more information on how you can have that kind of a relationship, please visit tatesprings.com and let us know. We love you and want to help you discover your part in God's story.